daily bread. Okay. All right. So last week we got through chapter one, and in doing so, we um, again cover the um, context of 1 Corinthians. And so I would like to start there with some of the basics about it, and then we're going to go into some more of the historical context. I will not be writing the historical context information down because it's just too extensive, but we want to discuss what you all looked at in Acts 18 this week um, and just kind of fit the pieces into the bigger picture of our puzzle of all the things that we know about what's going on with the Corinthian church. Um, but let's start by just reviewing what we know about the context. What do we know is going on with this church? They have division. The problem is divisions. Divisions and quarrels among them. All right, and that we see that in chapter 1, verse 10 in particular, where he lays it out, but it becomes a repeated theme over and over as you go through, particularly in, uh, in that opening part of chapter 1, but really through the whole book. Now, in this divisions, how does he make it clear what kind of divisions in particular he's speaking about here in chapter 1? Right, the following of, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, right? I'm going to write this down. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas, etc. Chapter 1, verse 12, okay? And then he poses a question that follows that. What is, he, what is the question that he poses once he lays out all these people that seem to be uh, basically dividing the church by the attention of these various men yeah so the question is and this is a good question isn't it the question is has Christ been divided now this is a, a great opening I think even for almost every week as we go through this and the question is always going to come back to in relationship to whatever the problem is, on the, the opposite side of it, the contrast to it is going to be where in this problem or this division or this quarrel or even sometimes the question is where is Christ standing in the midst of it? What is his opinion on it? Where, where does he or how does he compare to the problems that are going on? Or what does he think about the problems? What does God's word tell us about Jesus Christ and his stance on any point or, or question that's going to come up for us throughout the whole book that we go through. So he says, has Christ been divided? Now, how does he in chapter 1 begin to build an understanding of the solution that he's shooting for? What is the solution to this? When he says, how is, has Christ been divided? We know that they have been divided, right? And we looked at a, a definition last week, and it had to do with the renting of things, right? Things that had been rent or torn, right? So how do we fix what's rent? How do we repair what's rent according to what he says here? Do you remember the word studies that we did last week? When you look at um, verse 10, 
Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions, right? So a division is that which has been rent in two or torn in, in two. What does he say is our solution? But that you, that's right, that you be made complete. Now, do you remember what it means to be made complete? What was the definition of it? Because this is, I'm going to hit on this over and over, so you might as well write it down and get it into your thinking here, because this is central to the message of 1 Corinthians 13. He has a solution. He has a problem, right? The church has a problem, and he has a solution. And in his, and in his contrast, do you see the contrast there? What tells you that we have a contrast? But... It's right, circle that little word but right there in the middle of the sentence that there be no divisions among you, but. And so now he's going to give you the solution. But what is the solution? That you be made complete. Now, what does it mean to be made complete? And how does it contrast with divisions? Say it again. Okay, it, okay, yeah, it goes on to say that you have the same mind and the same judgment, and what you're saying, Sarah, is that that same mind and that same judgment is that of Jesus Christ. That is correct. Word study on being made complete. You can't find it? I'm sorry, Lisa. You'll get it for next week, right? <laughs> write, it in the, write it in the column of your observation worksheet in chap on chapter 1, because this is a key um, function that we're going to keep going back to, because this is like a pivotal verse in, this, in the opening of the book, which really can be applied throughout the whole book on the whole. Okay, so we're going to keep coming back to it over and over, and so that's why I'm keeping on it here. So, it, has Christ been divided? That word divided means to rent into, or to 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 divide, or to tear apart, or to uh, basically to break. It's like as if a rope is pulled until it is snapped in two, and now you have all these pieces, right? I think I drew a picture last. Maybe it wasn't with you guys. Might have been with one of my other students. But it's like having a rope that's been rent in two, right? And so now you, what you want to do is fix it. So guess what word is the opposite of to divide? Be made complete. <laughs> okay. So his answer here, let's put it up here. Author's purpose. Be made complete. Which, in definition, is simply to, uh, uh, to repair what has been rent. Okay, I'm going to put it up here. Repair what was rent. So, truly, divided and be made complete are contrasting words to one another. If you did not know that, now you know it for absolute, oops, wrong verse, 110, sorry. If you did not know that, now you do, do know it, right? This focus is going to be to, his focus in this whole book is to repair what, the, what has been divided. And he starts out by simply asking the most fundamental of their relationships, and that is, has Christ been divided? The answer is, no, no he has not. What, but what has happened to them that, 
it, it, the appearance of it in the church body and the function of the church body. What's going on? Right. Okay, so they're following men, and who are they supposed to be following? The Lord. In chapter 1, it talks about another key word, the word boasting, right? As you close out chapter 1, he speaks about um, all these things that God has done. As you progressively move through that, we, we saw in 1 to 3, Paul was called by the will of God, right, as an apostle. And one of the things we realized when we looked at that apostle was that um, in John 13, 16, it says an apostle is not greater than the one who sent him. The word apostle means the one who is sent by someone, right? And so he has been sent by Christ. And in the having been sent by Christ, we learned last week that no one is greater than the one who sent them. Why is that significant in chapter 1 when you look at the message of chapter 1? Right. Even Paul, who, by the way, is among the list of those whom men are following, he's saying, even I am not the one who is doing the sending, but that it's Christ himself, that he himself has been sent, right? And so then we get to the next paragraph, 4 to 9, and he speaks about their calling, and specifically, what is it that he points out to them about their calling? Who were they called to? That's right into fellowship with Jesus Christ. So if Paul himself has been sent and they themselves have also been called, his calling was as an apostle to be sent, they were called and their calling was not into fellowship with Cephas or Paul or, or any of these others, Apollos. He says, no, but that you've been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. So what has he done in those first two chapters then? What has he accomplished just in the, what appeared to be initially just a simple opening and a simple introduction to the people? What has he done by those two paragraphs? Yeah, he literally has stated the problem and told them how to fix it by re-identifying who each of them are, right? I love that it, it came out that way. It was some, such a clear statement once we got through that. Um, then he goes on to say, be of the same mind, as Sarah had uh, stated, be of the same mind and the same ju judgment, by, and how? By being made united and complete in, in Christ Jesus. Now, 18 to 25, he says, it's the cross of Christ that's the power of God that saves those who believe, not men. So although men were, were a fundamental um, uh, tool in the hand of God in bringing them into faith, but they are not the one who brought them into faith. It is, it is the, the cross of Christ itself. And then in 26 to 31, which takes us to the end of chapter 1, then he says he brings them back to the subject of the word calling. Now why have I mentioned the word calling at this point now in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4? How is it marked on your sheet, your observation worksheet? Very good. It is the key. Yeah, it, I mean, I know this seems rather, like, obvious, right? But I do think that those skills of looking for the obvious, sometimes we just don't. 
we get them marked and then we still try to evaluate what how we think or what we feel about things rather than pulling back and being objective what's on the page what color flows through how, because then in doing that what you do is you end up with an objective observation of that chapter rather than something that is going to be subjective and that one and it's a hard balancing act sometimes to do that you have to be really careful to follow the tools that uh, God has given us through this method so the fact that he starts out with I was called then he says of them you were called and now he's going to conclude it by saying consider your calling right right there at the beginning of 26 for consider your calling brethren and then what does he say about them about this calling that they were brought into who brought them in it's not men but it's God himself who, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So he did a really good job in that chapter one, don't you think, of just laying it out very systematically? Now we are moving into chapter two. So let me get this up here. The author's purpose then in, in where we're at so far is he's trying to draw them back into a, to a position where they have repaired what was rent. Rather than being divided by following men, he wants them to all be brought under the headship of Jesus Christ, right? And then he says in chapter one, then in whole, on the whole, so I'm just going to put this up here, chapter one, our theme was boast in the Lord who called you. Because they had been boasting in men who had been those, you know, that one key word that we saw at the end of the chapter there was the word baptized. And so there was arguments over who baptized. And, and Paul even kind of goes off a little bit on a, a little thing. Well, I did baptize this. I, well, no, maybe I didn't baptize anyone more. Well, maybe I did. And, you know, he kind of rambles a little bit. But he does come back to the final statement that that the um, Christ did not send him to baptize, but to do what? To preach the gospel. Now, why does he say it that way? What is, it, what is his intent in making that statement that God did not send him to baptize? Obviously, pastors do baptize, right? So what is his point? What is his message there? What's his point? Okay. Possibly he's saying there's that we each have our own calling and our own purpose in that. Okay. Any other thoughts? Right. Very good. Okay. Well, you know, that's a good point, Lisa. I kind of like that because that is becomes a rather sticky uh, topic when you get into doctrines on the in the church about salvation and baptism, what is baptism, and what, specifically what kind of baptism is being spoken of, right? Although I don't know that that is his most direct purpose. Why do you think, though, he pulled back and he says, "Well, I wasn't sent to baptize; I was sent to preach." Why does he do that? Think of the context of what's going on here. Go back to verse 15 and tell me what you see about what happens with baptism. And specifically in that day, there was an awful lot of this. And we're going to actually come upon this in Acts 18 again today. What is it that he says about baptizing? Yeah. You, were you baptized in my name? 
That's the emphasis that he's trying to make about baptism. And God did not send me to baptize you in my name, or for that matter, even my calling and my work is not for the purpose of specifically of baptism, right? However, there was someone who did have a calling for baptism. Do you remember what his name was? John the Baptist, right? He was sent to prepare the way for the one who was coming. And so his work was a baptism. And so when we move into Acts 18, we're going to see that this plays a significant role in the life of a man named Apollos. Do you remember what Apollos had when um, Paul and uh, Priscilla and Aquila met him at, at um, I guess it was at Ephesus, right? What did, what did Apollos have at that point concerning his knowledge? He really only had a, an understanding up to the point of the baptism of John. So what does that tell you about Apollos at that point? Uh, yeah, almost. There you go. He knew about the coming of Christ because John the Baptist was preparing the way for the one who was to come. So he had the message up to the point of John, right? But what happened after John? Jesus, <laughs> right? So Apollos had not, it's kind of like the Paul Harvey story. And then there's the rest of the story, right? He didn't have the rest of the story. However, was Apollos well-trained up to that point? Yes, but he needed more. So when a, a Priscilla and Aquila showed up on the scene there in Acts 18, they had to take him into the next part. So I'm just trying to pull these two pieces of the story together for you a little bit, because in Acts 18, we see an introduction about who you, in whose name you are baptized. Their baptism was into the baptism of John, and their identity was not so much in John per se, obviously it was still in God, but it was a baptism that I identified him with the message of what John was preaching, right? What was Paul preaching, according to what we've learned this week even, again? Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So when you're baptized into the Christian, the, the fullness of the gospel message that we have today, in whose name are you baptized? In the name of Jesus Christ, right? So your identity, your full your full identity is in that which was the message of Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, Paul says back in chapter 1, these divisions are not right. These are not good. You have been rent in half, and, and he asks them that question. Has Christ been rent? Has he been divided? And the, the answer to the problem with that is, I want you to be made complete. Let's take that rending and, and repair it and mend it. Bring it back into its authority, its headship. Who is, who have you been baptized into? Jesus Christ. And he says, therefore, I did not come to baptize. That's why he says that. It's not that he doesn't do baptizing, and it's not that he won't continue to baptize some, right? But he's saying, that is not my purpose, and certainly my purpose is not that you be baptized in my name. All right. That's chapter one. With that put behind us now, we are ready to move on to the, 
to the next step. Let's go into chapter, well, let's go into some more context setting. Let's just rebuild our context. Um, I am not going to write this part of the historical work that you did on the board because it's very lengthy, but I do want to just kind of systematically go through what you learned, okay? Tell me what you learned about Paul when you went into um, Acts 18. Maybe I should start by asking you a couple questions here first. Let me do this. Um, in 1 Corinthians, why, why did Paul write specifically? What, were, what was he doing in the writing of this? We know his purpose is to, to bring them back together to fix what has been rent, right? To mend what was rent. But in doing it, how does he go about doing that in, in 1 Corinthians on the whole? Okay, that is super important for you to always kind of keep before you that really he's addressing two things. Number one, what we saw in chapter one, verse 11, this report that came to him from Chloe's people, okay? And what came to him through Chloe's people were that there were problems going on. There were not only divisions, but there were also quarrels. And we're going to see throughout the whole book, there are going to be times when he's kind of going back and forth, and sometimes it's hard to see, is he actually answering a question or is he kind of going back in his thinking to some of the quarrels and the questions that might have uh, been addressed by Chloe's people. So that's the first thing. Uh, w uh, that's in chapter 1, verse 11. Then in chapter 7, verse 1, he begins with, um, uh, as was said, with, answering the questions that have been posed to him. So the questions have been written probably by letter and brought to him so that he could then answer these questions. Now, how does he go about answering questions? Very good. So you see, that's how we know the breakdown of the book on the whole. He hits a topic, and then he hits a topic, and then he hits a topic, which makes it pretty tough for inductive students to title a book, right? That's why what we see is on the whole, we're looking at a message where he is addressing. So that's why instead of just choosing one topic and saying that's what this whole book is about, rather than saying, oh, it's about the this division or about this quarrel, it really is more about quarrels and big and divisions and therefore you have to go then to the next step and say well then what is he trying to accomplish he's co accomplishing the purpose of that they be made complete right have one mind and one judgment on things okay so that's that now what was Paul's relationship then to the Corinthians as you saw in Acts 18 so let's flip to your obs observation worksheet on Acts 18 <clears throat> Isn't that interesting that he went to Corinth and he was there for a year and a half? And there's a lot of interesting things that occurs in Acts 18 during that year and a half, right? What was Paul's um, kind of his standard way as he is traveling? By the way, do we know w where he is as far as how did he come to come to Corinth? What, what sent him to Corinth? How did he end up there to begin with? Do you know? You're in Act, in the book of Acts, correct? Yeah. What happens in Acts chapter 9 once Paul comes into faith as he, uh, according to what's written in the book of Acts? What is that all about? Okay. Okay. 
Excellent. So what we see with Paul is he's always going to the Jews first. Who sent him to begin with, though? Do you guys know? Well, Jesus, yes. But you do understand that what we're looking at in the book of Acts is missionary journeys, correct? Okay, so that's where I'm kind of trying to draw you to see that. We have seen Paul on these different missions. And how many missionary journeys do we know that Paul went on that are recorded? Three, okay. So we have three basic journeys. Each time he, ref he, re he goes back to Antioch where he was commissioned and sent out from. And in the, so as he goes out, then he begins to travel in a, in a circuit, whatever his, his plan or course was. And sometimes it was dictated by God not allowing him to go one place and then opening up a path of opportunity in another. But as Paul is going, his, his routine, his standard is every city, particularly the larger cities and especially that are listed for us, Every city he goes into, the first thing he does is he approaches the Jews first, right? So what happened with Paul when he came to Corinth? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. What happened when he got to Corinth in, chapter, in Acts 18, verse 1? Yeah. So the first thing we see is he, he does make that connection with Aquila and uh, Priscilla, right? He found, and they are, they are actually Jews, right? He and he got a job. <laughs> That's interesting. It's kind of a neat little insight there, right? And so he goes, he's in the city, he's working, and, and he's preaching. He's doing both. And he, um, he is uh, a tradesman. What is his craft? He's a tent maker, which is really interesting historically when you think about it. What all was going on at the city of Corinth? What kind of things do you know about Corinth that a tent maker would be a viable income for him there? Do you know anything about Corinth? Okay, it's a center of trade, so it's a port city. There's lots of traveling people coming to and fro, okay? That's right. Who else, besides the, the international trade city that it was, what else was it home to? F okay, there was philosophies very big in, in Greece, right? All these, this, the Epicureans and the Stoics and the whoever else were there. I can't even remember all the names. But they all would gather in various places, like in Athens at Mars Hill, where we see uh, Paul in Acts... I want to say it was 17, was it 17, 18, or 19, somewhere in there. It's either before or after, it was before, right? It was before Acts 18, so it had to be in 17, where he goes to Mars Hill and he has an encounter and has a conversation with those at Ephesus there. So yes, we have the, the, the wisdom and the knowledge, right? How did they view wisdom and knowledge then on the whole in Greece? Yeah, it was kind of there. Um, almost, it really was their focus, and it was it was something that they all tended to seek for and and respect. Right? There was a a sense of awe and respect, and also just kind of a hunger for it. Um, I can I could definitely have fallen into that trap because I would have wanted to be at Mars Hill every day just listening to see what people were saying. I can see how that could happen. So we have that. Now, what else is going on? The reason I'm, I'm trying to hone in here, I'm trying to pull you down a little bit deeper, 
In your historical research about Corinth, what else ha occurs at Corinth that a tent maker would be very viable? Well, you, that, there is that also, yes. Worship, it's a, it's a central place for worship, right? Do you guys know about the, the games that, that were playing, the Olympic games that were there as well? Do you guys know? What happens when you have an Olympic competition going on in your town? Ah, uh, yeah, lots of people come around. And so when they come into town, what do they need? A place to stay. So therefore, can you, now can you think of the fact that all these, these uh, opportunities for selling tents and repairing tents would have been huge. Makes perfect sense. In a way, it's really kind of fun because for me, I always see Paul as just the spiritual man, you know, just handling the business of the day, which is the preaching of the word of God, which is obviously his number one goal. But however, on the flip side of that, can you also see how there's so much practicality also in here in his record. The things that he tells us about what he was doing, how he was doing it, where he was. For people who are in missions, these are sometimes just treasure troves of insights into understanding about the life of a, of a missionary. So Paul is in Corinth. He's met um, Aquila and Priscilla. He's come, he's come there, first of all, he starts out as a tent maker. He's sharing the gospel on the side, basically, when he can get away from his, um, from his tent making, he goes in to preach. How, how long does that last? Okay, he's there a year and a half. Does he tent make the whole year and a half? No, what happens? Isn't that interesting? So he gets a support system that comes in, right? The support system then takes over the financial needs, and then that frees him to be able to put full-time uh, uh, attention into sharing the gospel. So one of the things we started with is we said that when he first comes to the city, the first thing he does is he goes to the Jews. How was he received in Corinth among the synagogue of the Jews? Isn't that amazing? In the beginning, it was a bit of a resistance, but in time, then they got to the place where they were actually blaspheming, right? It became quite heated and quite, maybe even dangerous to some degree, right? Well, we know that because later on, what do we see happens to people who go against the Jews? They start beating people up, <laughs> right? And when they use that word beating in here, it's not like somebody just, you know, uh, swings a, a fist at him, but it's truly a beating, okay? So first first he goes to the synagogue, They're, they don't like it. Now what is his message according to 18.5 in, in that Acts account? When he's preaching, what is his, what is his message? That Jesus was the Christ. Now how significant is that when you're speaking to the Jewish congregation? Thank you. That is exactly what they were waiting for. They were waiting for, quote, the Christ to come, right? And so when he went there, he was trying to convince them, this is the Christ. Now, this is very interesting. They say they are waiting for the Christ, but yet their response is to blaspheme. Very interesting. What does that tell you about their, um, about their state of mind and their religion that they practice. Even though they say they're waiting for the Christ, are they? 
That's interesting. Do we, do we know people like that today who say they love Jesus and they show up at the, the church, right? But are their hearts really for God? Do you know people like that who say on the one hand they, they love the Lord and that they um, are a Christian? And so they do show up to church, but, but when, when things get into the, the nitty-gritty of knowledge of God and works for God, you know, out of love for God, out of reverential fear of God, do you see that often we are just like these men that we've looked at here in Acts? They say they love the Lord, and yet what is their response to a message of the gospel that Jesus is the Christ? The Christ, by the way, that they were waiting for? And their response is to not just revile, but to blaspheme. That's pretty, that's pretty profound statement here in the text. So now what's interesting, the next step is, okay, he leaves the synagogue. He says, fine, and he, I love this part. Do you guys remember when we looked at um, Ezekiel chapter 3, not too long back, where we said, what was the job of the prophet? The prophet was told to, to go and preach, right? And what if the person did not receive the message? That's right. So if he did not preach, then the blood that would be upon his own head. If he did preach, then what? The blood is on their own head, right? And, and in this case, what we see Paul saying is that he stomps and his feet and brushes his hands of them, which is a symbolic way of saying what? I'm not only done with you, but I'm not responsible. I've told you what God sent me to tell you. Jesus is the Christ. And you won't hear it. You won't receive it. You won't even have conversation with me about it. You won't even engage in dialogue about it. Instead, you're reviling. And that word, I don't wish we had had time, but the idea of reviling is, an, is a real aggressive word. It's, it's an anger and an and an assault kind of a word. They revile. And in the reviling, then they came to the place of actually blaspheming. So Paul goes next door. <laughs> Not very far, right? What's the next tidbit of information that you learned about? Who does he engage with? Isn't that amazing? He meets a man named Crispus, who is the leader of the synagogue, right? And what was Crispus, what happens with him? He believes, and he's baptized. That's pretty amazing, right? So now we flip back to 1 Corinthians uh, for chapter 1. What did we learn in chapter 1 about that same man named Crispus? Chapter 1, verse 14. He was among some of the one or twos or three that he actually did baptize himself. Very interesting, isn't it? So what we've now done is historically we've merged these these um, characters from Acts into First Corinthians, and we're beginning to build a little more insight about some of the activities and the way that he came about to come to know this church, right? Because after that, this is something we even looked at last week. What do we now know then about on the whole in Corinth? What happens while he's there? What happens? What's the response of others outside of the synagogue? Do any come to know God? 
Yeah, quite obviously quite a few because we have a church there now, right? A church, by the way, to which he is now writing. So many believe and they're baptized. And then how does Paul, according to 1 Corinthians 4, view himself? as their spiritual father, right? And so as a father, there's a nurturing about him and a desire to um, encourage him to both grow in faith and also to purge things that should not be in their life, right? Um, In chapter 2, verse 2, what was his message? The message in Acts was Jesus is the Christ. What do we see in chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians about his message? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is very interesting. So it's not only he is the Christ, but he is the Christ who was crucified. All right. Now, so he he plants faith. He waters some. Also, are others involved in the life of the church? We see as we draw toward the end of of, uh, Acts 18 that you did this week, um, there's kind of this this meandering of people, right? We see that Apollos shows up in Ephesus. Paul had been there for a period of time, but he then goes on down the road, right? He doesn't stay there for very long. He leaves and he goes down the road. But when Priscilla and Aquila get to Ephesus, this is when they meet Apollos. And we talked about this already, that Apollos had a portion of the gospel, right? And Apollos then is put straight by Aquila and Priscilla and given the, the fullness of the gospel. Now it's not just the baptism of John that he has received. Now he's into a full understanding that Jesus is the Christ and he is the Christ crucified. Quite profound and quite significant. Think about the message of the one to whom he was receiving it. This is Apollos who is a Jew and who, is, who are the Jews looking for? The Christ. And so he gets the full message. This is the Christ. And not only is the Christ, he is the Christ that came and was crucified. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time, but why might that little bit kind of play into the, the dynamics of what's going on with Apollos? Any ideas about... Um, when what did many Jews what was their idea of the Christ that was coming there you go you are just hot today girl man it's all that sugar you're eating well you are just on fire man and you've got you've got it your brain is working well back there See, we have the back row is doing good. Um, <laughs> yeah, because in many, in you know, for, on the whole, the Jews were looking for the Christ, but were they looking for a crucified Christ? No, they were just looking for Christ to come who would be the king, king of the Jews, right? And so when he was crucified, this was quite a dilemma for many Jews in the message. C- could you imagine that that might be part of the problem with the synagogue at Corinth? That, that part of the reason they went to the place of blasphemy is because they would not accept him as a crucified Christ. They were only accepting that they were looking for a Christ to come who would be king. That, right, well, yeah, and then there's that. Yes. And so that would be a problem if they didn't believe in the resurrection. So what happens when the Christ is crucified in this gospel that's given to them? That he's just dead. That's a problem. So they have to believe in the, cru- the crucified. If you believe in the crucified 
Christ, then you absolutely have to go to the next step and believe on the resurrected Christ as well. And Paul is going to address all of these qualities as we move through 1 Corinthians. But right here where we're at in Acts 18, or yeah, Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 2, we're trying to just merge together the the dynamics of these people and who they are and what's going on with them and why were their problems and why did he get rejected by the synagogue on the whole. And once he was rejected by the synagogue and he was basically cast out, there was another little incident in the middle of Acts there that where it's this uh, proconsul, right, of um, Gaius was his name, right? So Gaius, the, uh, charges are brought by who and against who? The Jews bring charges against who? Paul. Now, this is kind of a fun little part of the story because what had Jesus told Paul when he was rejected and, and when he himself, when God himself had been blasphemed by the synagogue, the, those who were attending the synagogue, but what had God then come back and say to Paul? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? He says, and you will not basically fall as a victim to the hands of those who are attacking you. But yet, was there an attack? Yes. So, boy, that took an awful lot of faith on, on Paul's part, too, to walk by faith, believing God said, I'm not going to let them hurt you, so don't be afraid. I want you to stay. Now, while he stayed, he was bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. He brought, he brought, um, um, what was his name? The first one who came into faith. Crispus. Crispus. That's right, Crispus. I should remember that. It's such a funny name. Okay, so he brought Crispus into faith. Now when he gets when we get to the part where he's uh, being attacked by the Jews and the proconsul is Gaius, now who's the leader of the synagogue? Sosthenes. Yes. Sosthenes. Don't you just love these Greek names? <laughs> They're tongue twisters. Okay, so what, what happens when he um, meets him? Right. Well, well it's... Isn't that interesting? Now, we, we kind of went through that. Remember, you guys, when we did Acts, it's been a long time ago, but do you remember how we talked about the legal side of this and that what Paul had done was... Um, through what God did through this account was actually legitimized Christianity at that time in history. He, he had a legal precedence which was set by this proconsul at that time by him declaring that the issues that were the Jews were fighting against Paul, remember? Yeshika, she remembers. But when the, this uh, argument that they were saying about Paul and the Jews were bringing against him and they were saying basically that he was blaspheming and he wanted the proconsul to basically throw him in jail and you know th lock him up throw away the key and the proconsul said no because what I see is this is an issue amongst yourself this is within your own law because in doing that then what he did is he's saying Christianity is birth, birthed out of Judaism that they're one in the same and one is a fulfillment of the other and by doing that he legitimized the ability for Paul and anyone else who followed him to continue to preach the gospel without it being a, a breaking of the Roman law which was the statement that you can't keep you can't bring up or, or establish new religions 
Okay? They said, yes, you, this is part of Judaism, therefore you can continue to preach, and it's, it's legal and legitimate. Now he's made a legal precedent on this. This was really cool. So that being on the side, that's extra information just kind of by way of review for those who, who needed that. I know the cobwebs kind of shook off a little bit. Those are kind of fun little insights. You hate to lose them after you've spent so much time building them, right? But um, he, he gets set free by... Um, uh, the proconsul. When he does, what does the Jews do? They beat up Stosthenes, right? That's really funny. What insight did you see when you went to First Corinthians about that? That might be some um, indication as to what was going on there. Yeah. So where is Paul? Where is Paul when he writes this letter to the Corinthians? Probably, Ephesus. And probably Ephesus. If any of you got into some additional reading, they think it's from Ephesus. And so at this point, who is left Corinth is Paul and Stosthenes. Yes. So they both left and, and and went on down the road. And how does Paul address him in First Corinthians? What does he call him? My brother. Oh, interesting. So what has happened to this uh, leader of the synagogue? He's also become a Christian. So Paul is actually bearing some fruit in that synagogue after he's left it, right? He's Now we got two pro-counselors, or, or two um, uh, synagogue leaders. Both of them are listed by name, and both of them have come into faith. So this is just kind of laying a foundation to show you the dynamics that's going on with Paul and these people and how he is bearing fruit in the city. He is a spiritual father to them, but there is there is opposition against the word of God that's being preached. And yet what, what Paul says, I, let me see if I can find it, because he says um, in verse 2, when he speaks about how, the fact that he is only going to preach among them um, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Did you notice that word determined? Did anybody happen to do a word study on that word determined? What do you think it means? Just take a shot in the dark. What does it mean to have determined? Okay, he has already made a decision about it. He's already decided it. So this means that he has forethought this through. Before he ever went in and began to make uh, the proclamation of the gospel, he had sat down and seriously considered what needed to be said to whom and for what reason. And in doing so, he boiled it down to one major point that absolutely had to be a message getting across and that was that Jesus is the Christ and he is the Christ who has been crucified and this was the message that he absolutely determined must be given to them at at Corinth all right so now we know how Paul kind of came about we know what's going on with Paul that gives you backdrop you see how he is he's planting faith he's watering faith he also makes mention in there and Kay brought it out to you in your homework were there others involved also in the nurturing of these people and their faith? Yes. One of them, at the close of chapter uh, 18, we went into 19.1, is who? 
Apollos, who at one point didn't have the full message, but now does because of Priscilla and Aquila who had been traveling with Paul. Very interesting how this kind of all gets opened up a little bit. Okay, so now that's more historical context to where we're at. We see now the heart and the problems and, and some of the dynamics that's going on there. Now let's move into chapter two and let's get our basics down on that. Uh, let's start by looking at chapter two keywords. All right. Tell me what key words you saw in chapter two. Wisdom. All right, wisdom. The spirit. All right, wisdom, the spirit. Thoughts. I didn't mark that one. That's. What did you learn on thoughts? Tell me what you learned on it. Very, okay, very good. So it kind of, yeah, at, well, and what that tells you when you see it in italics is what? Right, it's not in the original text, but it's been added in for clarification in the English for us to follow the, the reading of it better. Okay, very good. All right, what else do you have for keywords? Mystery. And it, concerning a mystery, what it, how what is it associated with, and what verse are you in? Um, I started in seven, okay. So the mystery, okay, very good. So the mystery links to the wisdom, and the mystery also links to the word the things, right? So let's look at it this way: the mystery works to uh, links to. The wisdom and the mystery links to the things. So what does that tell you about those three words? When you start making a list on them, what's going to happen? Are they going to overlap with one another? So when you look at this, the word, the mystery, what is the mystery? What is the mystery? It's God's wisdom. So it's very cool when you start looking and co comparing one thing to another and you begin your list making. I love list making for that reason because often list making will help you merge things together so that one thing associates with another. We're going to go through that together um, on a list ourselves and do that with each other so that you'll get to see that a little bit more carefully. Uh, any other keywords? Power. Power. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. So there's spirit. So there we see, begin to see uh, 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 another kind of spirit. And so how, when it's listed in the text, how is it compared? How is one compared to the other? Are they contrast or compared? Contrasted. How do we know if there's a contrast present? What tells us there's a contrast? The word what? But. How many buts are in this passage? A lot, right? Um, all right, so 
And when you are done marking all your keywords, what keyword seems to be the most dominant on your page on the whole? Wisdom. So now you know your keyword is the wisdom, wisdom of God or the wisdom on the whole, right? And you also know that there are a lot of contrasts. So in this particular chapter, do you think um, maybe listing your contrasts might be even more beneficial to you at this point than even just listing keywords all by themselves? How many of you found that when you may started beginning to make your contrast, did you make your contrast? Did, did you all do that? If you didn't, your key would be but, 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 but almost becomes a key word, right? There's so many buts in there, and the fact that there are so many of them in there tells you that you need to take the time to actually type them out or write them out. Because by doing so, what's going to happen is you're going to get to, you're going to see something. Something will begin to rise to the surface. You already know at this point from just what we've talked about that wisdom by looking objectively at your page, the word wisdom is a key word. And we see that because there's so many buts, there's going to be a lot of those. So let's go through and look at those. Hold on. Let's look at a few of them together anyway. Okay, so because of your skills development, this is really helpful to, to see how well and so how um, helpful it is to just do these contrasts. What contrasts in, uh, in the, the, well, what, you just tell me, what are your contrasts that you see? Wisdom of God versus the wisdom of God. Okay, wisdom of God. Tell me your verses. Wisdom of man, and you said 5 and 13. Very good. Okay, so the first contrast becomes wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. Now, how many other ways is the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man stated that basically says the same thing, that there's a contrast between those two kinds of wisdom? Thought. Okay, there you go. There's the word that uh, Lois brought up, the thoughts of man. And tell me what those verses are. Thoughts of God is what verse? 11. And thoughts of man? Oh, okay. And also in verse 4, where they contrast persuasive, false persuasive words, not false persuasive words, against demonstration of the spirit of power. Okay, I love that. And that's in four, and it's with the persuasive words of men. Which was interesting because they specifically say in Acts that Apollos is an eloquent man. Uh huh. Okay, so what did you when you when you kind of had time to, you know, analyze everything and get it all on paper and and then start to meditate on these things? What did you see in that? Is it a bad thing for a man to be eloquent of speech. No, that isn't really the point, though, is it? The point is not that you can't be eloquent of speech, because when Apollos is addressed as being one who is eloquent, is, uh, is it? Um, um, Acts 18, 24. 
Okay, thank you. 1824. In 1824, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. So that is all a positive. And although he was eloquent, and and uh, he, he goes on to say that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So he had not heard the rest of the story. So he had, he had apparently known about the coming of Jesus as being the Christ, but what didn't he know? His crucifixion and consequently what follows the crucifixion that resurrection although it doesn't make that statement it's talking about the crucifixion obviously those two subjects are going to go hand in hand so he didn't have the full story but we see him being a man who was eloquent so there's a contrast however so in this contrast obviously it's not speaking about a man like Apollos who was eloquently and accurately handling the word and and being persuasive of the word so the idea though of persuasive words of men here is saying something different then isn't it what else does it say to us does it give us any others how does he when he goes on in verse 5 so that right your faith is not to rest on the persuasive words of men but but on the power of God. So interesting, would you say verse five then actually comes to a place where, where he makes a statement so that, what is that uh, a term called? What, what is that term called to us? A term of conclusion. So he's actually addressed a problem in those first four verses, right? And even the first part um, of five, he says, because he does not want your faith to rest on the wisdom of men. So in that case, the persuasive words of men is speaking about the wisdom of men. In verse five, right? He links those two together. And he says, I don't want it to rest on that, but I want it to rest on a demonstration of the power of God and the demonstration of the spirit and the power of God, but on the power of God itself. So would you say that verse 5 gives us a statement up front that gives us a, his goal, his solution to the problem in chapter 2? We know that the, the problem is there have been divisions and quarrels that they're following men. Is that what we still kind of see over here? And in this context in chapter 2, how are they following men? What kind of men are they following? Yeah, eloquent speakers, people who are smooth and debonair, people who are charismatic at the pulpit, people who, can, who, who are slick talkers and can draw you in. Now, it isn't always a bad thing to be a slick talker. Do you know pastors that you absolutely love to listen to because, yeah, they're slick, but they're also mighty in power? They, have got, they handle accurately the word of truth, and it is a delight to listen to them. Yeah. But, but Paul says, but when I came to you, interesting, God chose me, Paul. What is Paul not? Not an eloquent speaker, right? As a matter of fact, he goes on, in, we're going to see more and more about this, but that there are a lot of things Paul is not. And I think we are going to be real surprised when we all come to heaven or get to go to heaven and we get to meet Paul. We're going to probably see Paul for who he really was. And we're going to go, oh, Paul, you're, you're like, 
you're not what I thought, right? Because we had this grandiose idea of this really cool Billy Graham, you know, this guy that can really preach it and who's just, right? But no, he wasn't like that at all. According to what he said, he says, God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, right? And he's chosen the things that are not to shame, shame the things that are. And, he, and he, he has already told us that this was what he laid out for us back in chapter 1. He wants you to understand that you're calling in God. Sometimes God calls the ones that are not for the purpose that what won't you get lost in? Them. He doesn't want you to get lost in them. Who does he want you to get lost in? Jesus Christ. This is really neat. So contrasting, the contrasting begins to, again, rise to the surface the conflict of divisions, right? It brings it back up. And in this point, we're in chapter 1, the divisions was who, in whose identity were you? And in this one, what is the contrast between? The presentation of it, right? The power of how you present it and what the focus of your message might be. Because in this case, they also speak about persuasive words of men. And he says it's the wisdom of who? Men, not what? What would be this one? The wisdom of who? The wisdom of God. I think that's in verse uh, 5, right? Okay, so now we can begin to see that the contrast of demonstration of power comes because it's the wisdom of God, that you're speaking the basic of his message, which was in verse 2, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Very cool. Nice, huh? So one thing draws you to the next, draws you to the next, and you can begin to see the constant contrast. Not the wisdom of God, the wisdom, contrasting with the wisdom of men. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified is the wisdom of God. All right, now, all right, so with a few of those contrasts laid out, let's talk about some of these other truths. Um, let's talk about the word the things. We talked about that a minute ago, just briefly. We brought it up. But it was a tough one in the beginning to really say, well, what are the things that are being spoken of there? So what are the things that God has given to us? What, how does he identify them? Yeah. The things are I has not seen in verse 9 and ear has not heard that's interesting that still seems rather vague doesn't it then he goes on in verse 9 to say things what things which have not entered the heart of man what does he mean by that Okay. 
Right. Okay, so in other words, it's he, what he's actually saying, that if the natural man can't do that, then the premise or the conclusion that we go to is that this is not something that we can work up in and of ourselves. We could never dream up the things that God has for us, the knowledge that's truly the knowledge of God. It's not something that we would uh, even contemplate. Why not? Okay, first of all, we do not even have the ability, and we're going to see how that works itself out in 11 and 12, right? But if not only do we not have the ability, but we don't have what else? With that Holy Spirit who, does, who is going to direct us into that, that way of thinking. But why not? What has is, what is Paul already told us in verse 21 in chapter 1? The world, through its wisdom, what? Does not come to know God. Why not? It's, a, it's foolishness to them, right? And it's because God actually has done, turned everything upside down on its head. Everything that man says, this is the way I would do it if it were me, God says, yes, and I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it this way, right? All right, so how can we ever get to these things, the things which... Uh, have not entered into the heart of man, the eye has not seen, ear has not heard, things we can't even dream. He says now these things in verse 12, what has God done? What has God done with them? Yeah, he is freely given to us by God, right? They are freely given to us by God. So now what I want to do is I want to take a little exercise here this morning. I want you to take, I know, you're going to love my thing. You know, in inductive Bible study, sometimes one of the best ways to learn and really get something deeply embedded into your understanding is to visualize. So I want you guys to take just a couple of minutes on a piece of paper in front of you. I would like to see you take verse 11 and 12. I'm going to read it for you, if I can find my 11 and 12. And I want you guys to visualize this. You just have to use stick figures. Now, Susan's not here this morning, unfortunately. She's our artist <laughs> on site. But draw this verse out as best you can. For who among men knows the thought of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So how do we go about learning and coming to know the things that are, have been freely given to us by God according to 11 and 12? I want you to draw it out.
Yes. Yes, and he's going to, later in the book, he's going to show one of the ways you can see the confirmation of this having taken place is going to be when you see the, the mark upon each person at, through the working of the Holy Spirit in their life, like through spiritual gifts, right? Okay, are you ready? Are we ready to kind of do this together? Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to start out. So they don't have to be perfect drawings. They just have to visualize what's being said because once you visualize it it is so cool I found a, a piece of clip art on my my word document in my computer that actually visualized it very well it's beautiful you'll get a picture of it in your but I mean it was really it was it wasn't like I just, all I did was Google a couple of words and I got this picture up and I went oh that's so good we need to visualize that verse 11 and 12 because this is a great way to really understand what's being said here okay so here's my man and he says who is man and how does he know the mind of the man right except the spirit that's in the man. Now here's that contrast that you said over here. The spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, contrasting with the spirit of man. This is what Carol brought up earlier, right? For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit which is in him? So a spirit of a man within him is what he's going to think on. It's what's going to motivate him to act one way or another, how he perceives the world around him, what he even understands about the world is all going to come from the things that are within him, correct? Then he says, next what? Even so, right? Now the next thing he does, he goes to God himself and he says, God Okay, this is interesting. So no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So here's my God figure, which is a triangle, and I'm going to put the Spirit of God within him. And how, how does he think? What is the mind of Christ? It's that which is his own spirit, right? The mind of Christ, he says, even so, um, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God himself, right? Now, what does he say then about that spirit that is the mind of God himself? What's 12 tell us about it? We have received it. This is so cool. So he says, here we are. Here's my little stick man. And he's going to have a mind as well, right? In his mind, he says, you are going to receive from God the spirit who is from God, which is going to indwell him. Now, on my coloring at home, I was able to kind of just cover him so he looked like he was all covered in blue. He has that Holy Spirit indwelling him. And therefore, because of that, what are the things that he is going to be thinking on? Is it from his own spirit? No, now he has the spirit of God. And that spirit of God is what is going to guide his thinking. Because God has given him the spirit of God, he now has a different mindset, right? What does it tell us in verse 16 is that mindset? 
What does it say? We have the mind of Christ. So now we have God himself, the thoughts of God, by the Spirit of God, and we have the mind of Christ. And therefore, he says, now, let's read that sentence again. Now, because we have received not the spirit of the world, that, that spirit of man, but the spirit who is from God, we, he has given that to us. Why? There's a so that in there. So that we may know what? The things freely given to us by God. Then he goes on to expound and gives us a bunch of contrasts again. Things which we also speak, not in words, by human wisdom. So here we have human wisdom over here. And that's going to be contrasted, but what do we have? Yeah, spiritual thoughts. That's in verse 13. That was also 13. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And then he says, but the natural man, so now we have another contrast, the natural man He cannot understand them because why? Okay, and now what's the contrast to the natural man? He who is spiritual. Now what kind of spiritual is that? The spirit of God, right? Not, not a spirit of, a, of a, the, the man himself, but the spirit of God, which has been given to him. He says, therefore, about it, that what does he do? He appraises all things. Now, you all looked up the word appraises. What did you learn about the word appraises? Very interesting. Do you remember that when we did our overview that we have a whole section that we're going to be getting into that talks about make men making judgments? And we, I think one of them had to do with um, he was rebuking them because they were going to civil courts against one another, for instance. And he's saying, what are you doing that you aren't judging your, amongst yourselves, right? Why are you going to the world to allow the world to judge you? Can you understand now why he's saying this? He's saying, if you're going to the world, you're going to the world who has human wisdom, and it's the natural man, and he has the thoughts of the man himself within him. That man is guided and directed in his judgments, his appraisals, through his own thoughts and his own worldview and his own, his, and his own being uh, as a human being. Is that where you want to go? Is that what we want from, from the church of God, to go to the world for the world to give us decisions on things. Yeah, no. So he says, spiritual thoughts, he who is spiritual, now that one is in verse uh, uh, 15, right? And he says, we appraise all things, so we make judgments on all things. Um, let me look at my uh, sheet here. Um, 
to judge of estimate, to determine the excellence of or the defects of any person or thing. The ability to do that is given to us because why? He who has the mind of Christ. So what's really cool is just by visualizing this, you're able to then start and then making your contrast on it, you're able to actually better understand the complicated way that he goes about explaining this. It is a little bit windy twisty and it kind of takes you here and there and you can kind of get sidetracked with some of the points that he's trying to make. But by visualizing it, it really streamlines it to show you that it's because he has given you his Holy Spirit that you have an ability then to reason things through, appraise things, although he says you are not appraised by anyone, right? All things. He himself is appraised by no one. Why not? Who appraises us? Who determines about the things that we do? What is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is evil? God does. Now, how do we come to know what that might be? So that we can stay in line with God on things. By the Holy Spirit and knowing his word. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it is a little bit like that. I just love the fact that, you know, he, he pre presents two things, the man in his mind, God in his mind. Well, how can we begin to appraise things spiritually? It's because God has given us of his mind by the Holy Spirit, which now indwells us. So he, we have the mind of Christ. Now, um, okay, so... What are the things that God has free, freely given us? Things that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, things which have not entered into the heart of man, not before, but have they now? Yes, how? By the Holy Spirit. They have been freely given to us. The, uh, it says we have received, verse 12, what? What have we received? We have received the Spirit of God. And that's in verse 11. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? What a great, what a great visualization that takes us to the spiritual. So now you can know that if somebody says, are you spiritual? You can say what? Absolutely, I am. I am spiritual. <laughs> so how? We have received the Spirit of God. Um, who is it then? I want to I ask that question, the who. Because um, he goes in verse 9, he makes another little statement that was a little bit interesting uh, originally. Before we went through these steps, I didn't totally um, work it all out. But he speaks about verse 9. The things again, because we talked about the things, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard. And then he says, all the things that what? All the things that God has prepared for, all the things that God has prepared. Yeah, now's the next question for who? 
And he says it's for the mature. And who are the mature? Those that love him, according to that verse in, uh, let me see here, verse 9, right, for the mature. Now, let me look at that word mature again. Okay, so in verse 6, he says, yet we do speak wisdom. So we started out with the subject of wisdom, uh, topics about God's wisdom and the mature. What is wisdom, and whose wisdom is it? At this point, we now know what? The wisdom is speaking of who? The wisdom of God. Boy, these things really, the problem with making lists sometimes is they all start to merge together. One list goes on the other list, and pretty soon, all your lists are looking alike. By the time you're done with this, what you come to see then is this one central message, and it's this conflict or this contrast that's going on between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men. And how can you and I possibly come into having the knowledge and the wisdom of God except that God gives us his spirit? It is an impossibility to do without the spirit of God being in you. The wisdom of God, he says, is, um, hold on. The wisdom of God, and it was the wisdom that was, this was good, that was predestined. Before the ages, what does that mean? There you go. Bef uh, to our glory. And that's in verse 7. So it's wisdom of God. It's wisdom that was predestined before uh, the ages for our glory. Ephesians 3, we looked at that last week, or we talked about it briefly. In Ephesians 3, uh, three, four, and five. It says it's the that what was predestined before the ages was a mystery before, right? Now it's not a mystery. It was a mystery of Christ, not made known in other generations, but it has now been revealed. So it's no longer a mystery, and it's no longer hidden. But it was predestined before the ages for our glory. And what does that wisdom produce? Knowledge of Jesus, what does, that, what, is, what does that take you into according to, I think it was verse uh, 5. Because you, wanna, you, want, uh, you want the power of God, the wisdom of God, to be that which you rely on, not the wisdom of men. Because the wisdom of men, will it bring you into saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? No. But the wisdom of God, it will, right? The wisdom that produces what? Faith that saves, right? Did you see that in verse 5? You're awfully quiet. Are you linking these thoughts all together at this point? I want you to, go, to talk about the word mature, too. I looked up the word mature. Did anybody else happen to uh, word study that for us? Yes, no? Did they do a word study on the word mature? Who are the mature, right? The mature. Well, we see in verse 10 that the mature are identified as who? Those that 
love him. Those that love God, right? That love him, that love God. Let's put that out here. That love God. And the mature, I, want, I would like you to just tell me what you know about the mature. Give me a shot in the dark. Who do you think the mature are that is being spoken of here? Huh? Okay, Chloe's people would just, well, they would be an example of the mature, wouldn't they? Yeah? Okay, excellent. Paul could be an, an example of a mature person. How, so what do you know about Paul that makes him mature? Right, very good. It's really not that hard to to draw yourself there. It's someone who's grown up in their faith. It's someone who's moved on. And they began with the foundational piece, the foundation being Jesus, what? Crucified. And then he built upon that. And this is what Paul talks about when he talks about those who are going to build upon the foundation. They are to be careful how they build. At least they build incorrectly, right? And the fact that God is going to judge that which is built upon, and he's warning them, don't build upon that foundation with anything other than Jesus Christ himself, anything which, which lines up with the truths about Jesus Christ, right? So he says the mature are those that love him. It's those that are the mature. They're adult, a full age, or perfect. Now, I found three verses that I thought were really good to kind of support this. Someone look up Philippians 3, 15 and 16. Who wants to look that up? Okay, Brenda's got that. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Who has that one? Okay. And then Hebrews 5, verse 14, and then the very first verse of 16. Hebrews 5, 14. Okay, thank you. Okay, so let's read those three to just kind of expand your thinking about who are the mature. The mature are those that love him. But in what manner are they loving him? How is it being displayed in their lives according to these three verses? Because the same word mature is used in all three of these. Now, the Philippians one, Brenda, is one that we have done recently because we did Philippians not that long back. What do you see that the mature are doing in that verse? 15 and 16, yes. Okay, and in one of the translations, it says to press on. Do you remember how we talked about that over and over, the idea of pressing on toward the goal, the upward call in Christ Jesus? It goes on to say that in other passages there in Philippians. So what you can see then it's, is he's saying it's not just those who love God and that's where you land, but it's those who say they love God and then do what? They press on. They they head for the mark. Now, how did your translation call it? Um, let me see. Living by the, by the same standard to which we have attained. Okay, living by the... Oh, that's very interesting. What is the standard they had to attain to? What did God bring them into? What kind of life did he bring them into? Faith. Faith. Into faith in Christ and a life, therefore, that would, would live how? How would it be lived? I'm just going to sin all the more because it's all by grace. Am I going to do that? 
What kind of life am I going to live? What have I died to? I have died to sin and to live to righteousness. So the one who is attaining toward righteousness, one who is going to attain to that which they are in, are then also going to press on into that same concept or that same righteous living. If you've been saved into righteousness, then you're to live in righteousness, right? Okay, now go into... Pardon? And actually, all of Philippians 3 covers that subject matter. So it's really, it's actually, it, if you go and read the whole of that chapter 3, and actually all of chapter, all of Philippians, but it's talking about the idea of pressing into your faith to mature, and which, and he calls it in there the word perfect. So that's another definition for perfect or perfected, to be perfected. And if you're being perfected, what does that tell you? It's not speaking of justification, but it is speaking of sanctification. It's the idea of your, of your continuing to grow in your faith, right? Okay, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Wow. So not only does he exhort them to do it, but he says about himself what? He strives for it, right? He himself seeks to do that. And he says, and how does he do it? By what? According to the power of God, which works mightily within him. Does that sound familiar to what we just looked at here? It's by the power that he places within us that you have been saved. He says you have, um, your faith should not rest on the wisdom of God, but on the power of God, the power that God has placed within you. How has he placed that power within you? By his Holy Spirit. The sp and the word power, when you looked it up, what is the word? Dunamis. I love that word, dunamis. It just feels so good to say. What is the, by definition, what is a dunamis power? What kind of power is it? It's the word dynamite. It's the basis for the word dynamite. And that same power in, um, I think it's in Second uh, Timothy 1.7, where he says, I've not given you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. When he speaks of it in that context, he's talking about power, dunamis power. What did dunamis power do in Christ Jesus? It rose, oh, sorry rose him from the dead, right? It was the same, and that same power, that same resurrection power is what God places within you and I. And that by that power, then we are to live. To un I mean, really, if you guys stop five seconds and just think about that, you and I have within us, by the spirit that God has given to us, dunamis, that dunamis lives within us to have an effect. As much as we can aspire to it and grab to it, God, and it's always there at work within us, and it will have its full effect at the time of your resurrection. It will have its full power at the time when God appropriates it in you for whatever reasons he uses it for. 
but you always have it there as an access to tap into. It's a matter of you recognizing it, I think, and really living in light of the power of it, the knowledge of the power that's within you. So you have a resurrection power, a dunamis power, and that's how we're to live. Interesting point that it's impressed on us so much. It is used 120 times in the New Testament. Wow. Think about it. I didn't know that. 120 times in the New Testament, that word dunamis, power, the power of God, which dwells within you and I. And so in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, it's a process basically then of growing and training, right? And he says in there, um, he is admonishing. Now that's one of the words we see in 1 Corinthians. Paul is admonishing them. It's part of the process of training them. He's rebuking them. He's exhorting them. But there is a place where he also uses that word admonish, right? And it says he admonishes every man and he teaches every man. So that's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians as well, admonishing and teaching. And he says, with all wisdom, that's our key word, and in doing that, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Very interesting. Same thing he says over here. He wants them to be made complete, be united, be together underneath that dunamis power that's been placed within you, that the headship of your life is Jesus himself. Okay, he says now in Hebrews 5, verse 14, and then 6.1. Who has that one? Okay, thank you. Yes. You might, and maybe uh, if you need to back up, go ahead. It's up, you know, pick. About this, we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, and he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their Wow. There it is. There's that, that distinguishing again to be able to distinguish good from evil. We talked about that a moment again. That's one of the goals for the mature is to be able to make that distinguishing uh, work in our, in our daily lives, to be able to discern good from evil. And he says, therefore, let us continue to press on to that maturity that ability. Now, how do you do it? He says they had remained babes, and he's, he's actually rebuking them in that Hebrews passage, and he's saying, what had they remained? Children, Children babies in their faith. And he's saying, I want you to mature. I want you to press on into maturity. So this is exactly what he's saying in this passage. He's saying it is for the mature. It's not for those who just love the Lord and then sit there although that certainly enters you into faith. But he's saying, I want you to press on into maturity. Maturity is going to therefore grow you up. You're going to grow in your faith because of practice and having trained yourself to discern good from evil. Very cool, huh? So that maturity is a big topic here, quite honestly. Would you say it has um, uh, uh, implications for... Uh, insight when we move into other passages in First Corinthians as well. So he's l again laying foundation that he's going to build upon when he moves on to the next part of this. So what is the wisdom? 
It's the hidden wisdom from God predestined before the ages to our glory. It's wisdom that produces faith in verse 5. And where did that faith come from? Well, what was his primary message in 2? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, so now let's very quickly title our chapters. I'm going to have to erase something. I want us to get the, the paragraph titles. Do I have an eraser somewhere? Oh, okay. oh, here it is. I see. Okay. Okay. Let's do our paragraphs. I'm sorry I didn't. I, I wrote too big. Okay. So, you know your chapter theme. Chapter 2, your theme is about wisdom, correct? Primarily. What did you, how did you title chapter 2 on your work at home? Where? Very good. Perfect one. Okay, your faith. Now, did you notice how faith comes out now as a major keyword? So even if you didn't have it, faith needs to be a keyword for you that's been marked over here, because the whole thing channels you back to this, the con the conversation about your faith, where your faith comes from. And he says your faith rests on the wisdom of God. Yeah, wisdom of God and the power of God. And actually, I had a really long one. On, uh, your faith rests on the wisdom of God, taught by the Spirit of God. <laughs> taught to you by the Spirit of God. Now, why did I add that in there? That's in verse uh, 13 and also 10. Why did I add that in there? What were these men doing concerning wisdom? Who were they relying on? What kind of wisdom? Human wisdom, they were being, basically they were allowing their ears to be tickled, not only to hear the things that they wanted to hear, not that so much here, but what they really wanted was somebody who was smooth and debonair and charismatic. And so they would rather not plug through someone like a Paul who was giving the purity of the gospel and those fundamental, how many times have you heard someone say, well, I've already studied that, right? What is God telling us here? You need to press into those fundamentals. The fund, the, uh, really, the heart of the message is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if your people that you are speaking to, the ones that you are teaching, if you cannot express that in a clear and concise way, there is no foundation being built for them. All you're doing is maybe doing some watering, and that's always good if they're already in faith. But if they need faith, if they need to come into faith, they need to know about the power of God, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, that he was crucified, right? All right, so your faith rests on the wisdom of God, and you can contrast that with not resting on the wisdom of God, right? Or the wisdom of men, I mean. Okay, then one through five is your first paragraph. How do we support that? How does he say to us that uh, the wisdom of God, what is the fundamental wisdom of God in chapter uh, paragraph one through verses one through five. That's right, exactly. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See how easy these become once you've worked all the rest of this stuff out. <laughs> Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Okay, that's a great title. Anything along those lines, if you can get close, you're in there, very good. It's not the persuasive words of men. Now we're going to look at six to thirteen. 
your faith is not resting on the wisdom of God, what does 6 to 13 tell us about the wisdom that comes from God? Okay. And it was predestined from before the ages to our glory. And how do we receive it? He says in verse 10, that wisdom is revealed to you through what? Through the Spirit of God. Now, how does that contrast with what they're, they're trying to hunger after in these chapters? That they're, want, they're seeking after men rather than God himself. And he's saying, you're not going to get it in men. If you want the wisdom that comes from God, it is going to be revealed to you by the Spirit of God, right? Through the Spirit of God. It is wisdom revealed through the Spirit. You know, you, I, had, I had put on there, given to those who love him. That's who gets it, those that love him, right? All right, 14 to 16 then, we're all, and we're, we're wrapping it up. 14 to 16. This, this one took me a little more work to kind of wrestle through, to kind of get the most concise statement. What's going on in 14 to 16? We have a couple of key words going on there. Okay, very good. Basically, the big hunk part of it is it's a contrast between the spiritual man and the natural man. So now you know it has something to do with, if you're going to get true wisdom that rests on the wisdom of God, you're going to have to be what kind of a man? A spiritual man. So now you know that your title somehow has to be about a spiritual man. What about the, the, the spiritual man? That's right. He has the mind of Christ. Because he has the mind of Christ, he's able to appraise all things, right? So you can see the spiritual man can appraise by having the mind of Christ. Or things, I use that word things in there because it became such a big um, key word that intermingled with the things. The things is, and what is things a synonymous to? God's wisdom, right? The things that are being spoken of as you made your list on things ta keeps taking you back to the wisdom of God, correct? So now you know all these things. Every time the word things is, you can mark it in the same way as wisdom if you wanted to, okay? So it's things the spiritual man can appraise by having the mind of Christ. I had to use that word have because it said in there he has you have the mind of Christ. Katie, we hear that expression the mind of Christ a lot. Mhm. Mm so I looked up mind. Mhm. Mm okay. All right. Tell me. It's news and it's um, the organ receiving God's thoughts through faith or understanding Okay, so it's receiving God's thoughts through faith. Wow, that's excellent. All right, and what is that number? Uh, 
3563 for those who want it. That word mind is receiving God's thoughts through faith. And I would just add on there, by his spirit. Because how do you get the mind and the thoughts of God? He gives them to you through, this, through his spirit. Spiritual thoughts, we receive the spirit from God. And he actually concludes the whole thing in that way. For who has known the mind of the Lord? that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. How did we get it? He gave it to us by his spirit. That's very good, very nice. All right. Any other questions or insights about chapter 2 that you want to cover before we wrap it up? That was a really great, I loved that chapter. I wish I had, I, I had out-of-town company in all week long, and um, it made my homework time really a little difficult, but it still all came together. How about that? <laughs> okay, chapter two is done, and we're ready to move on to lesson four next week. Thank you, guys. I, yeah. Can you imagine having the mind of Christ and not using it? How inane, how absolutely silly, how absolutely foolish to have the mind of Christ and turn from the mind of Christ to the thoughts of men. Do you know what that's called? That's called carnality. And that's what we want to look at today. And it may, as you look at what the scriptures say, you may find that you have been using the